All right, well, Matthew chapter 5. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to Matthew chapter 5, which is what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And um, one of the things that we talked about last week as we began, in order to understand the Sermon on the Mount, because there are many different views, at the very beginning in verse uh, 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again from last week, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, it's the larger crowd, he went up onto the mountain, and after he said sat down and his disciples came to him. Disciples come to him and he opened his mouth. He sat down, uh, disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Grammatically, who he's teaching here is the disciples. And so go ahead and write that down. The first key to understanding this is understanding that Jesus is teaching his disciples. This teaching uh, from chapters 5 through chapter 7 is a discipleship teaching. It's not about how you go to heaven. It's not a blueprint for world peace. He's, he's, he's teaching his disciples what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, one of the things that, that we highlighted last week, and I'll probably say it a few more times, is that when Jesus would teach, he very commonly would speak to his disciples and allow the crowd to listen in. And the reason that he does that is for for two reasons. First of all, he's constantly telling his disciples, this is what it means to be a follower of mine. The crowd would respond by saying, I I want more of that, or they would say, I want none of that. And so some would be pushed away by that, and others would be drawn closer. So Jesus, he speaks to the, the disciples in the presence of the crowd. Last week we went through um, the Beatitudes, and we, we looked at that up through verse 12 last week. And uh, one of the things that I said, and certainly is going to be applicable for every week that we are in the Sermon on the Mount, is the big question is, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Because there's a whole lot more than, than uh, we could possibly talk about. So, uh, And then the, the question is, what do you elaborate on and what do you just let the Holy Spirit do, do His work? And, and uh, so let's see where we wind up. We're going to pick it up in verse 13 today. Jesus is going to begin with two metaphors, and He's going to show how disciples, as they live their lives, how it's going to impact a watching world. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 13, and in verse 13 of chapter 5, He says, wrong page, He says, you are the salt of the earth. And I want you to just highlight the word earth. We'll come back to that. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So the first thing that he says, and and again, I want you to highlight that word earth. We're going to come back to that. But Jesus likens his disciples to salt. Now, in in that world, and, and certainly in our world, salt's kind of a big thing. And so salt had many different usages, and so our uses. And so he, he's not highlighting just one, but, but the common ways in which salt would be used and, and referring that back to a disciple. So very quickly, let's just jot a couple of things down. First of all, uh, one of the things that we find is that salt is essential to life. It's been said without salt, there is no life. Your body requires a certain amount of salt just to stay alive. And so without it, there would be no life. So the, the idea is as disciples, that what they do is going to be in some way bringing life. Another thing that, that in that day, and certainly today, salt is valuable. Roman soldiers were often paid in salt because you could trade that. Salt is, is a, a lot like the gospel. You don't realize how valuable it is until it's not there. And uh, you know, like we said before, if you don't have salt, you die. And so if salt is very valuable, it's like the gospel. When you don't have it, that's when you realize how valuable it is. 
Another thing that was commonly understood then and today is that salt preserves. And you want to write that down. Salt preserves. A primary use for salt is they would take it and they would rub it into meat. And as they rub it into, rubbed it into meat, it would preserve the meat so it would stop it from decaying. And so it's been said that the church today is also something that slows, the, slows down the decay of the world. As a matter of fact, I put there on your outline, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, you can look it up later, but it talks about how the church right now in the world, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, are a preservative against um, the, the, what's to come. And uh, in, in essence, we are preserving the world against that decay. There comes a time when the church is removed, and when the church is removed, things get really bad. You and I would know that as what's called the tribulation. So it, it's, it's a preservative. Another thing that I find very interesting is that, and, and you want to write this down, is that Jesus believed that being a disciple is supposed to bring flavor and not dullness. Over the course of the last 2,000 years, the perception of what that really means has, has flipped. In most people's minds, to be a disciple of Jesus, uh, in most people's minds, is probably the most dullest experience that you can imagine. But that's not how it is. That's sort of the, you know, the, the, the way that people look at it and uh, sadly misinterpret what's going on. But Jesus believed that being a disciple would be something that would bring flavor to the word, it would be exciting. Well, verse 13 again, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, it's interesting when Jesus says, if the salt becomes tasteless, some of your Bibles will say it a little bit different, loses its flavor, however it says it. And when he says that, the disciples at that point probably just began to ponder, what do you mean by that? So just for fun there on your outline, uh, strictly speaking, salt cannot lose its saltiness because sodium chloride is a stable compound. And uh, what that means is that salt is always salt. And so the, the only way that, that salt can lose its impact, salt can lose, uh, its flavor can be diminished is through uh, two very common things. Go ahead and write this down. One would be diluting it or mixing it mixing it. And so it, you would agree if we, we had a, um, a five-gallon tub here of water and uh, we took a teaspoon of salt and we stuck it in a glass and you filled the glass up with water, it would taste very salty. But if you put that in five gallons, it would be diluted so much that it would completely lose it, its, its impact. It, it, it's not that it loses its flavor, it's just that you're not going to taste it because it's so diluted. Does that make sense? And another way that, that salt loses its impact would be in mixing it. Now, we wouldn't get this so much, but let me just show you a quick map. We've been looking at this map over the last couple of weeks, but in Israel, up in the north, you have the Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River flows down to the south into what's called the Dead Sea. Now, if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, you know that, that you float in the Dead Sea because it's so, so rich in minerals, and, and uh, salt is uh, you know, one of the primary ones. So what they would do is they would go down to the Dead Sea where the salt was so thick, and they would mine the salt, and of course that would be take, taken back in other places. At times, they would look at what they think is salt, but there's another, there's another substance there in the Dead Sea, and it's called gypsum. Now, gypsum is white. It looks just like salt, but it's what you would make plaster out of. And so sometimes they would cut what they thought was salt, but the salt would be mixed with gypsum. 
And so, it, again, it's what you make plaster out of. So when they went to use it, it, it wouldn't be good for flavoring because, you know, it, you know, plaster, and it wouldn't be good for preserving. And so they'd say it's tasteless or it's useless. And so that's certainly a possibility. So um, you'll see in the Bible several places where it just talks about you, you want to be very careful about mixing or diluting the gospel, God's word, and, and just being, being a believer. For instance, all the way in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it says, you shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it. So adding would be diluting it, or when you, you mix it with something else. I have great friends in ministry. We have very strong debates about what you should and should not do, and we're the best of friends. So sometimes the, the discussions get to the place where we're like, you are a heretic. You want to go have lunch? And it's like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So, so we're, we're very different. Um, one, of, one of my friends loves to do things like he'll take the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. You go through the chapters, and then you find some verses over here, and you kind of attach that over here. In my view, I would say you're kind of diluting it. You're mixing it with something else. Jesus doesn't need your help doing that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, and so be very, very careful about that. Again, great, great friend. And, uh, but you shouldn't add to it. Don't take away and be careful that you don't mix it. Paul would say it like this there in your outline. And even my preaching sounds poor, for I do not fill my sermons with profound words and high-sounding ideas for fear of, and I've, I've underlined, diluting the mighty power there is in the simple message of the cross of Christ. And uh, so we, we always want to represent appropriately, and uh, we don't want to dress it up. We just want to be very, very straightforward. And so one of the, here at Calvary, we just stick with the straightforward teaching of God's Word, and uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I mean, we, we, we talk topically sometimes, but this is the mainstay of what we do. So he talks about if it loses it, its, its saltiness. And, and uh, so in their minds, they would think in terms of diluting it, or, or mixing with something else. And so we don't want to mix it with earthly philosophies and those other things. It's, it's, it's you know, the, the gospel is to, to remain pure. I did see something in this that I found very interesting, and uh, hopefully you will too. Let me read that verse. I put it there on your outline, and it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has an underline where it says, become tasteless, become tasteless. And I put the Greek word there, you can read it, I won't even try to pronounce it, but it says, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, when you look at a definition in in a Greek dictionary, what it will do is it will give you the, the definitions, but it always gives you the most common way that something is translated first, and then it goes down the line to where, you know, the least way that it's commonly translated. This word where it says become tasteless there in your outline, the most common way that that word would be used, and I want you to underline this, just means to make foolish. Does everybody see that? To make foolish. So we we could say you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has been made to be foolish, how will it be made salty again? And so it, it could be more than just tasteless, Jesus might be implying, as the word suggests, the most common way of using this, that as believers, as disciples, if you do things that just make it foolish, uh, you're going to have a real hard time making it salty again. 
Uh, maybe you've turned on TV and you've seen some things where you, you look on and it's in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, but it looks absolutely ridiculous. Or maybe you've been in certain environments where it, it's professing to be in the name of Jesus, but it, it just conveys just foolishness. And uh, so that could also be uh, a possible understanding of that verse. Did you find that interesting? Good. Two of you did. That's always good. So, all right. So hopefully we're not the ones who are making it foolish. You know, I always want to check ourselves first before we, we look around the church landscape. Well, verses 14 through 16, he says, you are the light of the world. And I want you to underline that word world and just keep in mind that Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But here he says, you're the light of the world. And it's going to be a different word. We'll see what he means by that. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And it's true. You know, it's on, on the hill, it can't be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and place it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And here's how they respond. They will glorify your Father who is in heaven. I want you to underline your Father, and then it says who is in heaven. So the first thing that I, I, I notice is that he says in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, and that word earth there means earth. Here he says you are the light of the world. Now this would be a phrase that Jesus has shared with his, with his disciples in other places. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, he's going to say this, and I put it there in your outline. It says, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. But what's interesting to me is the word world there is the word cosmos. Does everybody see that? Now, we would spell that with a C, but whenever it's translating from the Greek to the English, they tend to pronounce it phonetically so that, so that we would understand it's a K sound, not a, not a possible C sound. So cosmos, it's the same word. He says, I am the light of the cosmos. And uh, when you look at that, you think it's, it's a little bit more than, than maybe just, just this world, world. But here in verse 14, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world, but the word there in the original language is also the word cosmos. Does everybody see that? So he turns to his disciples and says, you're the salt of the earth. And they go, okay, we get that. They said, but you are also the light of the cosmos, the cosmos. So what does cosmos mean? Well, they probably began to ponder this just as we would, just thinking about that word cosmos. Cosmos there in your outline means an apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution order. And, and so the, the first way that they would probably think about it is that as disciples, they are the ones who radiate God's harmony and, and his order. And that's what it means to be a disciple. If you've ever been into a church environment where there's not a lot of harmony, uh, you know that, that someone within the context is not being the light of the, the cosmos. That's the idea of, of with that word. And so we shine God's harmonious order. Cosmos also means the universe, and you have that there in the definition. And so I, I would suggest that Jesus is talking more, it's more than just being the light uh, of this earth. It's the light of the cosmos. So more is, is implied. 
It can also be, as less translated, but it can also be the inhabitants of this world. So that certainly would, would make sense. And then he says we're the light. And the last way would be to the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. So Jesus says, you are the light of the cosmos. It's, it's much greater. You're the salt of the earth, and that's certainly flavor, but there's so much more going on when he says you are the light of the earth, because he also says he is the light of the cosmos, or you're, you're the light of the world. Well, verse 15, he says, uh, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand that it may give light to all who are in the house. So Jesus is speaking there in Galilee, and he's using an illustration that they would be very familiar with. It was very common in that day for houses. Many of the houses were just one room, one one room uh, houses. And so they would have a lamp, and the lamp would look something like this. There would be a small lamp, and uh, you'd have a wick in one side, which would be where the fire is, and then you'd have the reservoir, you'd pour the oil in on on the other side, and so that would burn. It would give, you know, pretty much like a candle. So it wasn't like a 110-watt bulb. It was just, you know, a candle. And so what they would do is in order to, because the houses were, were small, it would give enough light that you wouldn't be bumping around in the darkness, but they would raise the light up. They would elevate it in some way so that it would give light to everybody who's in the house. It's not going to be this flashing light, but it's enough for you to see your way through is the idea. And, and so in doing, in doing that, uh, the purpose of the light would be to give enough light. And so Jesus is likening that to being a disciple, that the way that we live our lives should be enough to give enough light that people can see their way through. They can make a decision about Jesus. When it says that you wouldn't put it under a basket, it's not saying that the light would go out and you would lose your, your salvation it's, or anything like that. It's just saying you would never hide that. So as a disciple, you would never hide what it is that Jesus has done in your life. And then he goes on in uh, verse 16, and he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, um, go ahead and write this down. Our works are to be done in such a way so that not so they can see us, but so that they can see him. So every, every Christmas, I, I come before you and I say, we're going to participate in the Angel Tree Project. That is, we're going to purchase presents on behalf of those who are incarcerated for their children. And uh, so in doing that, those who are incarcerated know that it's the people who love Jesus who showed up for them. And it's the people who love Jesus who purchased the presents for their children. And then we go into the house and we say, this is from your dad. We're from the church. We're here because we love Jesus. And and everything points back to Jesus. Because it points back to Jesus, they have the opportunity to glorify God. Now, Now here's the difference. It's very, very popular in the church world today to say, we're going to go out as a church and uh, we're going to do some really good things and we're not even going to tell them that we're believers. We're, we're just going to go out and do good things. And as we do good things, you know, maybe they'll ask a question and say, you know, why do you do these good things? And then we can share with them. In order to fulfill this verse, we have to do things in such a way that they know it's because we love Jesus, because we're from Jesus, so that they can glorify our Father who is in heaven. 
if we just go out and do good things, then we're, we're just like any other service club that's out there. What makes us unique is what we do points people to Jesus. Does that make sense? So, so just, um, you know, so, so I don't know what you do with that, but so then um, verse 16, he says, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, you and I missed this because we grew up in church, and uh, we've known about Jesus for, you know, since we were kids for most of us, many of us. But go ahead and write this down. This is the first time Jesus says, your Father, your Father, indicating the unique relationship believers will now have. You see, Jesus is speaking to a bunch of Jewish disciples, and they never related to God, our Father, personally. He was always the Father, but not my Father. So he would be the Father to the nation of Israel, but never in a personal sense. The change is going to be, and Jesus is going to highlight this all the way through, that God's desire is to have a personal one-on-one relationship with each and every one of us. So he's not distant, he's personally, intimately acquainted with all of us. And so this is the first time Jesus says, your father. And it doesn't make us think so much because we grew up in the church, but to these disciples who grew up in a very Jewish background, that would be a very, very different way of thinking. So we see that. Well, now we go to the the next section. And um, as we go to the next section, we began this by saying that the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is to understand that Jesus is speaking to disciples. He's not speaking to the crowd. And so speaking to disciples, certain things are are settled. You know, their salvation is settled, their relationship. He's speaking to those who are, are committed to him. That's the first part. Uh, this is the second key to understanding what the Sermon of the Mount is all about. So I'm going to read verses 17 through 20, and it says, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke, jot or tittle, however your Bible says that you want to underline that, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pretty straightforward stuff. Let's just close in prayer. <laughs> All right, so what's going, what's going on here? Has anybody ever been troubled by this passage? No one. Okay, this is good. Uh, I, I have been in, in times past. Jesus begins this. Now, you got to remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. They're right there, and there's the larger crowd around him. And so Jesus is speaking to them, but the crowd is listening in. In the crowd, we're going to find that there are a number of religious leaders. There's scribes, there's Pharisees and Sadducees at times, and so they're they're listening in. So Jesus makes this proclamation. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law. 
Now, in, in their minds, they were beginning the question because Jesus wasn't doing it the way that they always understood it should be done. So they're beginning to ask the question, have you come to abolish this? Or are you doing away with this? What, what are you doing? So Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill. Now, here, here's going to be the, the, the big difference in this. And again, this is going to be the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount and certainly as, as we travel through. So go ahead and write this down. Jesus fulfilled the law by living it as it was intended and not by how they misinterpreted. Jesus fulfilled the law by living it as it was intended and not by how they misinterpreted it. So let me give you an illustration, uh, a case in point. We Let's say, um, you know, the, the law was given 1,500 years before Jesus comes on the scene. The law refers specifically to the first five books of the Old Testament. And as the story goes, the nation of Israel, they found themselves in Egypt as a nation, and they're, they're now a, as slaves. And so as a slave, it's this constant bondage. And, and in this constant bondage, one of the things that takes place as a slave, they never get a day off, ever. Ever. There's no holidays, there's no, you know, take the weekend off, none of that. So let's say you're, you're 40 years old at that time, you would have never in your life had a day off, your parents would have never had a day off, and your grandparents would have never had a day off, ever, under any circumstance. So one day, the, the situation is, is, is so bad, everybody's praying, it's been going on for years and years and years, and one day, God sends Moses on behalf of the people. Moses shows up, you know the story, goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. And you, 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 know, you know the story, if you don't you know, get the movie, it's, it's uh, pretty good. So, so Moses shows up, let my people go, Pharaoh says no, plagues start to come, and finally, finally after the ten plagues, Pharaoh finally says go, just, just go. So you begin to follow Moses out into the wilderness, God is leading, and Moses goes up onto the mountain and he gets the law of God. And he comes walking down and he says, guys, I have the law of God and this is how it's going to be. Now, keep in mind, you've never had a day off in your entire life. Your parents never had a day off and your grandparents had never had a day off. So Moses comes down and he starts to read and he comes to the part where it says, and I put it there on your outline, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work. And you're listening to that, you go, wait a minute, did he just say what I think he said? And you turn to your buddy, did he just say we get a day off? Did he say that? And and, and you begin to think, you know, not only is God saying you get a day off, he says, I want to make so sure that you get a day off that I'm going to make it a commandment. I'm going to make it a rule, a law. So you go, I haven't had a day off my whole life. My parents never had a day off. My, my grandparents never had a day off. And you're saying, I get to take a day off. I get to worship God. I get to hang out with my family. I get to relax. I get to kick back. And you say, God is awesome. This is the greatest thing ever. I mean, we've never had a day off. And God said, not only do I want you to take a day off, it's a law. It's a rule. You're going to take a day off. And you go, God, you are like so amazing. Does that make sense? So 1,500 years later, what was given as a blessing to the people had turned into a burden, so much so 
One day Jesus goes to the synagogue and there's a lady there and she's been afflicted, we would say, for a good number of years. And Jesus goes up to her and heals her. And of course, the religious leadership responds in this way. There in your outline it says, but the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which the work, uh, which work should be done, so come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath. And here's the thing, they had missed the point. They had misinterpreted what the Sabbath was all about. The Sabbath was given as a blessing to take a day off and to kick back, relax, worship God, and, and not get out there and try to make another buck just to take the day off. But it didn't mean you couldn't help somebody who had a need on the Sabbath. They had misinterpreted it. So the, the reason that's important is what Jesus does is he fulfills the law by living it according to the way it was intended, not by the way that they had misinterpreted the law. Does that make sense? So if you go down to verse 21 very quickly, in verse 21 it's going to say, you've heard it said that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And what Jesus does from there to the end of the chapter, and we'll look at it next week, he takes six of the commandments that they were the most familiar with. He says, this is what it was said, but here's how it was intended. And the way that you guys have taken it, you've now distorted it. And so he's going to put it back in the right perspective. We'll talk about that next week. One of my favorites will be when he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And uh, that became so misunderstood. You see, the idea was if when there was a wrong done, the punishment had to be equal or equitable to that. You couldn't give more punishment or less punishment. This is to a people who had just come out of Egypt, where if you looked at somebody the wrong way and they were an Egyptian, they might kill you. So that would be more than an eye for an eye, something equitable, that would be much more. So the idea is that if you stole something, you would have to pay it back and it would be in keeping with what you stole. Uh, they, they didn't actually cut your hand off. That would be more punishment than what the crime intended. Now if you stole something and uh, instead of, uh, and, and they just gave you a good talking to, that would be less punishment than what the crime required. And so the idea, it was a phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and the whole idea was make sure that the punishment meets the crime. Not more punishment, not less punishment. We'll talk about that next week. It was all to be, so there would be a fairness in judgment. Okay, did I put you to sleep on that one there? All right, so um, we'll look at that next week. So then verse 19, he says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a couple of things. Uh, it's keeping the law as he will interpret it, not as they had misinterpreted it. Also he says those who keep it and teach it will be great in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest in the kingdom, and those who don't do this so well, they're going to be least in the kingdom. Here's what's important. They're both in the kingdom. They're both in the kingdom. One might be off on something, but they're both in the kingdom is the, is the idea. So we'll look at the commands as we go through as how he interpreted them. 
One of the things that we're going to find is that when Jesus interprets the commands, he deals with the heart more than the outside behavior. And we'll talk about that next week. So another way that Jesus fulfilled the law was by fulfilling the prophecies that talked about the time when God would come to the earth as a man and uh, he would die on the cross in, in man's place so that man would be free from the burden, the part of the law that was a burden. And uh, so Paul would say it like this, having blotted out the bond written in ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, he had taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And so there's some of the ordinances and all of those things we're no longer required to keep because Jesus took care of all that. He fulfilled that. That's a bigger conversation for another day, so we'll just we'll move on with that and talk about that later. I did want to highlight something here that I, I think is very important. In um, verse 18, I put verse 18 on your outline from the old King James. And it says this. Jesus says, For verily I say unto you, and anytime Jesus gives you a verily, that means that you can take this to the bank. Till heaven and earth pass, not one jot, and that word there is iota, or one tittle, and there's the Greek word there, shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. And uh, we, we read that and we miss something. It tells us uh, how Jesus interpreted or his view of the scripture. Jesus says in English, in the Old King James, not one jot or tittle. Now, the iota is the Greek word for jot, which would mean just like a dot. But the other word, I won't try to pronounce, well, karia is a, a butchering, uh, means uh, something horn-like. Uh, especially the apex of a Hebrew letter, figuratively, the least particle. So when Jesus says jot or tittle, what he's saying is, if I were to make an R and uh, you know, not the capital R, but the smaller R. You make a line straight up and down, and then you make this little line that comes out kind of like a little hump. Everybody see that in your mind? And that that would be that word. What Jesus is saying here, and, and we miss it, is what Jesus is saying. I want you to write this down. Jesus believed that the scripture was inspired down to the smallest parts of the letters to the smallest parts of the letters. I um, the, the older I get, the more I'm around Scripture, the more I've come to understanding that Scripture is, is, uh, is God's Word, it's God's design, and it, it comes to us from something outside of the space and time. It's, it's, uh, it, it's eternal, it's amazing, and God self-authenticates in the Scripture. So if you've ever heard of something called the Torah Codes, they're fascinating. You know, some are kind of wacky, but, but uh, some are absolutely fascinating. In the 1600s, there was a rabbi who held the view that Scripture is, is inspired down to the, as Jesus would say, down to the jot and tittle, the little marks in the letters. And because of that, he began going through the law, the Old Testament law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so as he goes through... As he's going through Genesis, he comes to the first letter that he finds, which would be the first letter of the word Torah. Torah just means law. And uh, he finds that and he circles it. And then he goes and he notices that 49 letters later, there's the next letter in the word Torah. And so he, he thinks that's interesting. And he goes on 49 
letters later, there's the next letter in the word Torah, and then 49 letters later, there's the next one. So every 49 letters, you have the word Torah spelt out. He says, well, that's very interesting, you know, and, and uh, 49 is a, a multiple of seven. Seven's kind of a big number in the Bible, and so he finds that very interesting. So then he goes to the next book, which is Exodus. And he goes into, he finds the, the first letter of the word Torah, and he discovers once again, every 49 letters, it spells out the word Torah. He thinks that's really amazing. So then he goes to Leviticus, which is the next book. Every 49 letters, nothing happens. Okay. So he goes to the next book after that, which is Leviticus, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I'm doing this so I can remember. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And what he finds is it's every 49 letters when you come to the first letter, but this time it's backwards pointing to Leviticus, which is the middle book. He says, that's very interesting. So he goes to the last book of the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy, and he begins to do that. And it comes Torah, and it's every 49 letters, but again, it's pointing back to Leviticus. So you have in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the word Torah beginning the first time every 49 letters pointing to Leviticus. Wow. Torah, 49 letters, that's a multiple of seven. So he starts going through, and what he finds is in Leviticus, he finds the first letter to the word Yahweh, the first time that it's mentioned, and he goes every seven letters, and he finds that Yahweh is spelled out every seven. So he that begins what's called the Torah codes, where you have the first, second, fourth, and fifth book of the Torah, spelling out Torah, pointing to Leviticus, which apparently points to Yahweh, which is the name of God. Statisticians, statisticians look at that and they say for that to just happen uh, is in the realm of what they would call statistical absurdity. And there are so many fascinating things that the Holy Spirit has put in there so it self-authenticates itself. And not only does it self-authenticate itself, but it tells you that we have some very reliable manuscripts because if there were some changes over 4,000 years, you would expect that that wouldn't take place. So again, this was discovered in the 1600s. And you can type in Torah codes and Bible codes and things like that and find some very interesting things. Some are wacky, but uh, some are very, very fascinating. But Jesus says something that we would echo here at Calvary, that it's inspired down to literally the parts of the letter, the smallest parts of the letter. Make sense? Did you at least find that interesting? Okay. Verse 20, we're going to wrap it up with, he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, to which everybody begins to say, well, how, if, if, if I got to be more righteous than them, how am I ever going to make it? Because these guys give their whole life to being right before God, every part of the law. What we're going to see, and you want to write this down, he says, we will see that Jesus came to bring a different kind and quality of righteousness, sorry for the spelling of righteousness, not an increased quantity. And so he's going to talk about that, and we'll pick that up next week as we travel on. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and uh, close in prayer. Did you find that interesting today? Good. Well, let's pray. Father, uh, your word really is your word, and it really is amazing. And you have self-authenticated its inspiration, its design. And so we, 
we stand with you, that every word is there by design. Of course, in the original languages. And, and Father, we pray that we would be that light that gives enough light so that people can see in the dark, make a decision, come to know you, and follow you. Help us to live out that phrase, your Father, and understand how personal it really is. And I pray, God, that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.